0: My guest today is Professor Arik Levinson, who is Professor of Economics at Georgetown University. He's known for his research in the fields of energy economics and environmental economics. Welcome Arik. Thank you, it's nice to be here. Yeah, thanks for doing this. I want to start with one of your earlier papers in 2001, The Simple Analytics of the Environmental Kuznets Curve in which you say evidence suggests that some pollutants uh, follow an inverse U-shaped pattern relative to countries' incomes, a relationship that has been called an environmental Kuznets curve. So this is the idea, Eric, I don't know much about this, obviously. Um, So the the low-income countries have low consumption and hence uh, low uh, uh, pollutants level, and the high-income countries have high consumption but they have technology to take care of it so we have a group of countries sort of stuck in the middle who is
1: creating the highest amount of pollution is is that true i think that um you capped you, you you captured it pretty well um, the idea goes back to the early 1990s when uh some researchers at the world bank noticed this pattern that in the early 1990s data was first starting to come in at about pollution levels all over the world. And researchers of the World Bank noticed that the poor countries don't have much economic activity and so they don't have much industry and don't have many cars and so they don't have much pollution. Mm. And the middle income countries are the ones that were industrializing and getting uh, worse and worse pollution. And the richest countries in the world like the United States and Japan and Northern Europe didn't have much air pollution uh, and clean water. And that was a... Um, On the one level, that was a a revelation because before that there was a a sentiment among a lot of analysts that economic growth and environmental degradation went hand in hand. And so if we're going to solve the environmental problem, we would have to slow economic growth. And this documentation of this pattern showed that at least on the surface, that wasn't true. But as you intimated in your introduction this could be for a lot of reasons it could be that poor countries make a mistake and they have bad policies and then they they fix it yeah. or you know some conservatives pointed to this pattern and said oh this is evidence that that cleanup is automatic and all we have to do is get rich and then the environment will take care of itself yeah and and, and some anti trade activists pointed to this and said what's really going on here is is the rich countries are just importing the polluting products um, that are being now manufactured elsewhere. And so they're just moving the pollution around the world and it's not solving the problem. And so just documenting the pattern doesn't give us any policy implications because it's consistent with all of those ep- explanations. Does that make sense? Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So so, so
0: you said a few things there. So, so I want to dig deeper on that. So one of the hypotheses is that when you get rich, you have more options. You can basically pay somebody to take your pollution and you probably pay sort of the middle-income countries because, because you can transact with them maybe. I'm just making this up, uh, Eric. So
1: so so, uh, do we have evidence that that is happening? It turns out that evidence is very hard to find and I've spent a lot of time looking for it. A lot of, it's, it's an intuitive idea that You know america and and northern europe and and uh, wealthier countries have imposed strict environmental regulations and that has shifted the polluting industries overseas and now we import the polluting products from those other countries and it's very hard to find evidence of that Um, and i think it may be happening but it's really small you know, one of the reasons it's it's hard to find evidence of that is that the most polluting industries aren't really transportable easily. Cement is hard to transport. Um, law, paper and pulp and paper is a very polluting industry, but it tends to be located near the trees. Yeah, um, yeah. The the chemicals industry is located near ports where there's oil and gas uh, uh, and so forth. And so it's very hard to to trade in those products. Right, yeah. And, and so
0: the other sort of uh, idea was that um, the, the uh, developed countries have technology, so they, they, have, they can take care of it. Um, uh, you just mentioned your daughter is just flying out of India. I, I remember, um, I mean, India and China both had this problem, and both are, you know, China's obviously gone a lot further than India. And um, we have a major pollution problem, for example, in India, right? Um, and so that sort of fits that uh, fits that narrative, I think.
1: I think one of the things that's going on here is that um, country governments solve local pollution problems first. So one of the first pollution problems every civilized society solves is local drinking water, right Yeah they can't You can't defecate in the stream and and survive as a society. Um, Then local air quality. um, And then transboundary air pollution. Air pollution that goes across states and countries is harder to solve. And the worst problem of all, of course, is climate change because there's no global governance. And so if you think about a small town, um, if a small town is poor and they have really good government, they solve the local environmental problems, um but they might pollute in such a way that it harms the neighboring town.
0: Yeah. So so so
1: localization
0: of pollution never it, it's not going to work, right right? And so so, so is that is that sort of the issue that we are dealing with that uh, it is uh, so let me ask, uh, so, so what do you find from the data? So it's not really income, it's other factors that is driving this this observation.
1: So the, one, the the thing that Jim and I wrote down in this paper called the simple analytics of the environmental Kuznets curve. It's a it's a really simple economic model. It's called a Robinson Crusoe model, named for the the castaway, uh, the literary uh, castaway. And the idea is there's an economy of one person on one island, and he does something for his sustenance. Let's call it picking and coconuts, and um, he's the sole person on the island, so he's both the employee and the employer, if you want. And to add pollution to the mix, we suppose that everything that he does also creates pollution, so think every coconut creates a coconut shell that's litter on the beach. And if Robinson Crusoe is poor, then he Poor, by which I mean it's really hard for him to get coconuts, there aren't many trees around and he can barely feed himself, then he doesn't devote any time to cleaning up the shells. And the richer he gets, the more polluted the beach gets. Mm -hmm. But at some point when he's rich enough, which is that there are lots of coconut trees around, um, then he will uh, be well-fed and decide to devote some of his time to cleaning up the beach gets beyond that, the cleaner the beach gets. And that's the pattern in the environmental Kuznets curve. That's the same pattern that the World Bank noticed. This is obviously a metaphor, but it's a metaphor that's interesting because there's no international trade. So you can see this pattern without exporting or importing pollution from abroad. It's economically efficient. It's not that Robinson Crusoe made a mistake because there's only one person in the economy, so it must be efficient. Yeah. And it's also not a sign that it's automatically it's necessarily efficient because if you think of a small island with 10 people on it each acting their own best interests they're each going to pick coconuts for themselves but they're also going to litter the beach and not care about it because of each other mm-hmm. and so it it the paper is is a simple economics model and all, and what it says is that the data that we see don't have any policy implications yeah and, and so let me just so i guess that was that was revelatory at the time because people were writing op-eds in the Wall Street Journal and other places, saying, drawing policy implications from this observation of the World Bank.
0: Yeah. So, so let me let me understand this, Eric. So, um, so it sounds to me that the uh, every country uh, wills is sort of trying to localize pollution in this case. So they're cleaning up their neighborhoods, they're making the air more breathable, they're making the water more portable. Um, for, so sort of a localization of pollution, but pollution is not necessarily localizable. And, and we see the same thing in the COVID-19. <laughs> I want to get your perspective on this. It's a worldwide pandemic and if i have a country with 20 million people i you know i vaccinate 15 million of them and i say i have herd immunity that's not going to last because you got 8.3 billion people out there and pollution is sort of in a similar
1: vein isn't it well I, the the parallel i would draw is that um wearing a mask and becoming vaccinated are um largely public goods yeah um, most of the benefit of wearing a mask is that you don't make other people sick. And most of the benefit of getting ma- vaccinated is that you're not gonna transmit a disease to other people. Mm-hmm. Um, and we need to induce people to do those things. And, and the environment and climate change in particular is also that way. Most of the benefit of taking a shorter shower or buying a more cost-effective, uh, more more energy-efficient car is a benefit that's enjoyed around the world, not by the person driving the car or taking the shower. So we have to find a way to get people to do things that are in the global public interest. And I, I think the pandemic has illustrated that its persuasion isn't that effective. It's not that effective in the United States. Yeah, yeah.
0: So th- that that's a big insight. And so uh, so if I if I understand you correctly, you know that if you see a problem that is not necessarily localizable, but there are behaviors that are necessarily localizable, and it has it has worldwide impacts, uh, uh, albeit small, <laughs> but uh, in aggregate it has positive effects.
1: One of the um one of the things I had hoped for, which turns out not to be true, is that local pollution is correlated with global emissions so for example factories that emit carbon also emit sulfur dioxide sulfur dioxide is a lo- local pollutant carbon is a global pollutant and so india and china are suffering terrible local pollution and they're they're gonna their own citizens are going gonna demand action mm. and if cleaning up sulfur emissions and cleaning up particulate emissions which are local also reduces carbon emissions that's good for the planet. And so China's Beijing's brown skies I thought was good news for the planet because the citizens of Beijing would demand action and that would result in in mitigating climate change. Yeah. That turns out not to be true because it's there are lots of ways to reduce local air pollution that don't reduce carbon emissions. For example, you could move the factories away from Beijing. Right. That solves the problem in Beijing, but it doesn't solve the, the problem for the planet.
0: Yeah. So, 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 when you have a global problem like environment or COVID-19, um, the the sort of the instinctual reaction of countries and, and counties and states will be to localize it, but but it, it's it's not really going to
1: solve the problem. It's not, it's not necessarily going to solve the problem. And the, and the technology, um, the US has, during the Obama administration, proposed a bunch of policies that would reduce carbon emissions. And those, any policy that reduces carbon emissions, the technology is weirdly asymmetric in that um, technologies to reduce carbon emissions also happen to reduce local air pollution. And so anything that you do for the planet You get a local benefit from but the reverse is not true and so the obama administration tried to sell its climate policy as look it has all these local benefits Mm -hmm. and that's that's true Um, but the reverse is not true um, in that cleaning up the local uh, the local pollution doesn't necessarily reduce climate reduce uh, carbon emissions globally
0: yeah. So so given all of that, all right. so if you were to formulate a policy, I know that you were involved with the Obama administration. Um, I, I, are you involved with the Biden administration or?
1: No, no. So so, so I'm, free, I'm free to say, I don't think I would be speaking on a podcast if <laughs> <laughs> and so if you not to, so freely.
0: Yeah. I mean, if you had to formulate a policy today and I'm talking about pollution specifically, what what would be the characteristics that, that you would want to be in it?
1: Well, I'm an economist. And since 1920, when Pagu wrote uh, his treatise on this, um, economists have recognized that the most cost-effective way to reduce pollution is to tax it. Yeah. Uh, to in, what we call it internalizing the externality, make people pay the full social cost of their activities. So if you're driving to work, you pay the cost of the gasoline, but you also pay the cost that the pollution imposes on everybody else. Right. And that is hard to, um, politically, that seems to be hard to enact, not only in the United States, around the world. We can talk about that if we talk about some of these other topics.
0: Yeah, so but, I- if- Do it. So you you have a recent paper, energy efficiency standards are more regressive than energy taxes, theory and and evidence. You say economists endorse taxes as a cost-effective means of uh, reducing pollution, but policymakers raise concerns about this, uh, about the regressivity or disproportional burden on poorer families, preferring instead to regulate energy efficiency. Uh, and we see this all the time right so um, uh, the us is sort of a sort of a distinct <laughs> system where nobody likes taxes anytime somebody say tax you say that is that is a bad you can't do that you have to have better policies than taxes uh, but but you find something entirely different here right
1: right so You asked the question, what would my policy be? My policy would be a tax or something that emulated a tax. The benefit of a tax is that it equates the incremental cost uh, of every every unit of pollution reduced across all the different activities. So you can think of it this way, if we're doing two different activities to reduce pollution, one's really expensive per unit of cleanup and one's really cheap per unit of cleanup. We should do more of the cheap one and less of the expensive one and we could get just as much cleanup at the same cost and that's the benefit of a tax it gets an outcome like that tradable permits same thing now yeah. as you point out yeah people don't like taxes and one of the reasons they don't like taxes um on environmental goods is that they let's think of the gas tax Low income people pay less in gas taxes than, than high income people, but they pay more as a share of their incomes because their incomes are lower. So if you're poor and you drive half as much as a rich person, but you have only the 10, a 10th the income that tax is a bigger burden on you than the rich person. And so people don't like that, that nature of the gas tax that it's disproportionately falling on poor people as a percentage of their incomes, but that misses two points. The first is that it ignores what we do with the revenues. If we took all the revenues from the gas tax and we gave it to low income people, that would of course make them way better off. Um, And there are many proposals on the table right now um, to impose a carbon tax to refund the money so carbon tax for every uh, activity that you undergo you're taxed according to the carbon content of activity um, using electricity driving your car um, cooking on your stove but then the revenues are all pooled and handed out to households on a per household basis or a per person basis regardless of how much electricity or gas you consume and so since low income people use less energy than high income people they would pay less in taxes and receive the same benefit the same benefit check high income people would pay more in taxes and receive the same benefit check and so this is effectively a transfer of income from high income people to low income people and conservatives don't like that proposal <laughs> because it's income redistribution so there's got to be politically some happy medium between returning all the money per household or per person which would be re- income redistribution and just taxing low income taxing people on the basis of their gasoline consumption or energy consumption and putting it into the general revenues some happy medium between those should be able to thread the, the the political needle and get it passed yeah you know this is very
0: intuitive from an economics perspective And uh, it's sometimes difficult for general public, uh, you know, to to fall behind on, uh, and policies ultimately depends on uh, how people internalize this information. Uh, I sometimes, you know, think about this, Eric, you know, in in corporations, um, you know, in business schools, we teach the investment and financing decisions have to be separate um but uh, most managers in in companies don't actually
1: do that sure Uh, yeah i think in this case it's a politically it's a the the if the if the gas tax or the carbon tax is the right thing to do economically then politically maybe we can use the revenues in such a way that gets that passed so Get the stakeholders make make uh, electricity consumers not worse off. Um, get the unions on board by building uh, high-speed transit or whatever it is they want. Um, use some of the monies to offset the capital gains tax or the corporate income tax or whatever would get conservatives on board. I, there's a big pot of money there that could be used politically. In a way that would get the gas tax passed and if the only goal is to get the gas tax pack so we solve climate change then those are achievable but i, yeah, I, I did want to say sorry yeah, no, go ahead. The 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 environmental just the inequality of the gas tax and its burden misses the fact that it ignores what we do with the revenues but it also misses what we do instead of the gas tax so yeah. in the united states what we've done instead of a gas tax is standards for vehicles fuel economy standards for cars emissions standards for cars and those make cars more expensive so if you think about it this way the gas tax makes driving the car more costly the fuel economy standards makes buying the car more costly and it's not obvious which one is better or worse for low-income people versus high-income people. And in the paper that you cited, energy efficiency standards are more regressive than energy taxes, I do the calculation for the United States and say that on a dollar-for-dollar basis, uh, the thing that we've done instead of a gas tax is actually worse for low-income people than a gas tax would be.
0: Yeah, yeah, I mean, it's really, really interesting. So, you know, one of the problems we have, obviously, is that politicians, Uh, have four-year horizons. Uh, Their only objective function, they're the only factor in their objective function is to get elected again. Um, And and so they want to go out and say, hey, I did this. I I implemented an energy efficiency policy, you know, and I didn't raise your taxes, you know, um, and so vote for me. Uh, But what you're showing here is that the, the the real uh, if you really look at it from an economic perspective, uh, the the optimum strategy is to tax, and if you believe it's regressive, there are there are other opportunities for us for us to uh, make it less regressive by by income, uh, you know, as you say, conservatives conservatives don't like the the term income <laughs> redistribution. Uh, but but really making it less regressive, there are ways to do that, uh, and so so it's almost like from an economics perspective, you have to solve the problem optimally, and, and then figure out the objections to it. Um, you know, to to take care of it from a societal perspective. But uh, but I I think it's difficult to do that with politicians having four year horizons to get elected
1: it is and i'm conflicted as an economist because i i think what we should do is preach the the truth or what we see as the truth or what we understand to be the truth about the cost effectiveness um and yet it if it's never gonna are we letting the the perfect be the enemy of the good the biden administration is about to roll out a whole series of proposals with the aim of cutting carbon emissions in half by the end of the decade I can't imagine any of them are going to include a carbon tax i could be wrong but i, I would be surprised mm-hmm. given the rhetoric so far mm-hmm. um and so you know are we as a as environmental economists concerned about the the state of the planet are we gonna oppose that on the grounds that it's not the best possible plan or are we going to stand up and cheerlead for it because it's the best thing that could could be uh politically feasible and if we do that are we really as economists practicing political science without a license. I mean, I don't I have no insights into what's politically feasible and what's not.
0: Yeah, but you know, what what's politically feasible is one thing, but your students understand this idea um, that the beauty of taxes, um, especially gas taxes, as a consumption tax, it allows us to fully not necessarily fully it allows us to internalize the real cost of driving. And those types of solutions are more likely to be optimum. And so I know that economic students understand this, but as you say, um, politicians, maybe they understand it, but, you know, they don't really want to do anything about it.
1: And there are other things going on, right? The, um, the, like, not everybody... Right, I, I, I sort of agree with you that I thought my job as a college professor is to teach generations of, of college students this this idea and they would go out and, and be voters and, and some of them would even be politicians and that enough of them would go and they would enact good policies it doesn't that's that's pretty naive i think well you know one of the things that's going on is that if i enact a standard that requires that cars be more energy efficient or or emit less um, pollutants that's kind of an invisible tax. It's the car; the price of the car goes up, but you don't necessarily notice it. Whereas the gas tax, you know, it's people notice gas prices. They're in in large font on every street corner in America, <laughs> uh, and and you see, it's the only it's the only consumption item where I I stand there with my hand on the hose, watching the the dollars tick up, you know, cling clink clink on the pump as as I watch my credit card be charged. <laughs> so it's, it's really salient for people in a way that other costs aren't. And so a hidden cost, like a fuel economy standard for a car or an emission standard for a car, may be more politically pal- palatable.
0: Yeah, I mean, so, you know, I have debates, uh, Eric, you know, with fairly educated people, engineers with PhDs and so on. And oftentimes, you know, if I take your argument, I won't be able to convince them that cafe standards and such regulations are less efficient. Um, so, 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 make your case. Uh, make your case in more quantitative terms. So, 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 why do you think um, carbon taxes and gas taxes
1: are more efficient for society? Two reasons. One's very simple, which is that. Um, faced with a gas tax, there are many ways that I can re- I can respond and reduce the pollution that comes from my vehicle. I can demand cleaner uh, more energy efficient cars. I can drive less, I can carpool. Um, all of those things are what we want people actions we want people to take. If I impose it a cafe standard, a fuel economy standard, That only does one of those things. It makes the car more energy efficient and it leaves the other ones off the table. So in that sense alone, the CAFE standard is more costly. But there's a worse problem with the CAFE standard, which is that the CAFE standard makes driving cheaper. So, Once I've purchased the car, it's now cheaper for me to drive because it's more energy efficient. And so that undoes some of the goal Mm -hmm. of the policy. And uh, there's an economist at at, um, UC San Diego named Mark Jacobson, who's estimated that the CAFE standard costs six times as much per uh, per gallon of gasoline reduced than a gas tax would cost. Or flip that on its head, for every dollar of expenditure on a CAFE standard, we could have gotten six times as much pollution cleanup and gasoline reduction with a gas tax
0: yeah I mean, that that's a big factor six times so 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 what is missing uh, i don't know i i don't know much about how politicians or uh, administrators make their decisions uh are. so but you know when they make these models are they really considering as you say the behavior changes associated with the policy change so i get a fuel efficient car and i you know drive it around Two two times as much as I would have otherwise. I have completely negated what uh, what was originally intended.
1: Right. I don't. I don't know that the response is that large. I, the the cost benefit analyses that the Department of Transportation and the U.S. EPA do now, in advance of changes to the fuel economy rules, they factor in some response. Maybe it's ten percent. Mm-hmm. So car is uh cheaper to drive and people drive you know for, for every for every dollar uh, of cost savings you'll drive 10 percent more something like that it's not um but it's a back of the envelope calculation it's a very hard behavioral um it's a very hard behavior to estimate
0: yeah. So, so when, when you were with Obama administration, so do we have, from a policy perspective, are, You know, it seems to me that we need some sort of a normalization. We need some sort of a valuation process for every policy suggestion. So what's the net present value to society type calculation for every policy suggestion? We have alternatives. We can compare them. Do we have a process like that, just, just like we do in businesses?
1: We do, it's, and I think it's spectacularly uh, important and spectacularly effective. And it dates back to Ronald Reagan, yeah. uh, an executive order that Ronald Reagan issued and it was uh, reissued by Bill Clinton and by Barack Obama. Um, and it uh, Ronald Reagan set up an office in the Office of Management and Budget called the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs. OIRA is the acronym. Yeah. Um, and they are the gatekeeper for these regulations. So every, regula- every regulatory agency that Promulgates an economically significant piece of regulation like a CAFE standard or a carbon standard or a a new healthcare rule, they have to do a really serious cost benefit analysis in which they calculate what you said, the net present value of the benefits versus the costs. And they have to compare that against alternatives. And if they don't do that right, the Office of Information and Regulatory Affairs can send it back and if they uh don't do that right they can get sued in court and have the um have the regulation um sent back to the agency so it's taken really seriously there are good engineers and good economists at the uh agencies that work on these things they're 900 page long documents with uh with charts and tables and graphs and everything you want to know about the the industry so this is a it's a serious process and um and I think it's pretty well done in a lot of cases. Yeah, so so let me push on this a uh, little bit, Arit.
0: So, um, you know, in companies, um, you know, we, we do this, we have a lot of spreadsheets, we have a lot of uh, finance and accounting uh, folks who do these models, um, but oftentimes, they you know nothing is deterministic right we have uncertainty we have flexibility we have sequential decision making what companies hold are options not uh, cash flows uh and hence at the end of the day when it uh you know kind of rises up to the ceo level he or she makes a cut based decision um <laughs> you know based on experience um what is an in process in the government? Um, we can't really create an NPV the way that we do net present value because there's so much uncertainty, so much feedback processes going on in the policies. How do they how do they incorporate those things?
1: Um, they incorporate it in a couple of ways. Some of them um, is just doing a sensitivity analysis. So we think that the you know people will drive 10% less in response to a uh, doubling of the gas tax. Um, what if it's only 5% or what if it's 20%? So we yeah. can put both those in the table and look at the different parameters. And no one of these cost benefit they're called regulatory impact analyses. None, none of these regulatory impact analyses um, exist without abundant sensitivity, different yeah. states of the world. Yeah, yeah.
0: And so, but but we have, uh, so, so your efforts here, you know, um, right from the Obama administration, have they been successful in convincing uh, policymakers uh, of your ideas that, uh, you know, taxing gas would be less aggressive?
1: Well, so let me back up a second. So you said that the analysts can do whatever they want, but it goes up to the decision makers, the CEO <laughs> of the company. And that's true at the federal government level as well. Yeah. The Trump administration, wanted to roll back the fuel economy standards that were set by the Obama administration. Mm -hmm. And so they went to the EPA and the Department of Transportation, they said, in order to roll back a regulation, you have to do the same serious analysis as was um, done to to enact the regulation in the first place. And so the analysts did the regulation, the analysts, it was the same analysts who had done the analysis put the regulation forward in the first place that had net benefits that were positive. And so undoing the regulation would reduce those, would would have net costs. Yeah. And in fact, that's what the Department of Transportation's regulatory impact analysis showed. It showed this will be net harmful to American car consumers. Mm -hmm. And yet, the OMB passed it and President Trump signed it and it was uh, finalized as a regulation now it's this week in the news it's come under um, uh, scrutiny because some of the epa analysts uh were were complained about the process and were left out of the loop on that process but the, the analysis was done it showed net costs it went to the ceo which was in this case the president and the president signed it anyway
0: yeah. You know, I sometimes think, Eric, you know, the, the simpler solutions are always better. And so even if, even if uh, I don't have all your analysis, I would say, you know, some sort of a consumption um, tax on gas or some sort of carbon, carbon emission tax would be the simplest uh, high compliance, very easily understood is likely to be the, the, the optimum policy. But it's not that simple, is it? (laughs) It's simple economically, it's just not simple politically. It's not simple politically, yeah. So we have to somehow figure out a way to, do you think, are you optimistic that, I mean, you know, from an economics perspective, we have the best researchers in the world, we have the best understanding how complex systems work, but our policies have been haven't been that great. Uh, do, do, are you optimistic that we would get
1: better? Depends on what day of the week it is, I guess. <laughs> right, right, so okay.
0: So so we'll take a quick break, Eric. Uh, so when we come back, we'll talk about your recent paper. Uh, okay. Evidence from American Drivers. Good. Thanks. So we're back, uh, Eric. you know, we were talking about um, energy efficiency policies around energy efficiency, environmental degradation, and uh, sometimes the simpler and more optimum policies like um, a gas tax or a carbon tax, uh, as opposed to more complex things like cafe standards and, and variety of other things. Uh, at least uh, it, it appeared appear to be more optimum, but it's very difficult to get them passed from, an, uh, from a political perspective with politicians with four-year horizons for decisions. You have another paper in 2021 who values future energy savings. Evidence from American drivers, uh, in which you say regulators that test that energy efficiency standards save consumers money. More efficient light bulbs, appliances, and vehicles would cost more upfront, but reduce energy expenses by enough to compensate. But uh, using data on American drivers and cars, you show this. This is this is generally true, but only on average. Uh, and so, um, so so when you look at the distribution, uh, so so what do you find?
1: Well, this is a nice segue from what we were just talking about, because we were talking about those detailed regulatory impact analyses that uh, agencies do before they promulgate a new regulation. So if the Department of Energy is going to regulate the efficiency of light bulbs, they do one of these cost-benefit analyses. The the light bulbs will cost more, but they will save electricity over the life of the bulb. The air conditioner will cost more, but it will save energy over the life of the air conditioner. And a curious feature of all of those without exception is that the cost savings in the future energy are more than enough to compensate for the extra expenditures for the upfront appliance, the upfront light bulb, upfront cost of the air conditioner.
0: If you buy a hybrid and it costs you $3,000 more, but but it's going to be more efficient, so you're going to get it, get the money back in, in a few years or something like that.
1: Exactly. And so that raises a puzzle in economists' mind as to why people aren't doing it anyway. Why do we have to regulate this industry? If, if this is a product that is good for customers, why do we have to force companies to sell this product, to manufacture and sell this product? Um, and there are a bunch of explanations. You know, uh, one of the explanations is financing costs. It's, it's people have to borrow to buy their cars, and they therefore, um, you know, if those costs are expensive, it may be cheaper to, pay, to buy the the more ex- the less expensive car, even though it costs you more in the long run, than to finance the extra cost of the hybrid. Um, because the savings wouldn't justify those financing costs. And I have a PhD student who's writing a dissertation about exactly that point and finding that that isn't the explanation for the puzzle. Yeah. What what Sager, my colleague at Georgetown, and I find in this paper is that we look at the claim for automobiles about that the extra expenditure on the upfront cost of the car would more than justify the future savings. And we point out that that depends on how much you're going to drive. So if you're planning on driving every day a long distance to work, that buying a fuel efficient vehicle would clearly pay for itself because the cost uh, savings of that gasoline not consumed would be high. But if you're the kind of person who bikes to work most days, um, as I do, and, uh, and uh, doesn't live very far from work and, and the car sits in the driveway most of the time, buying a fuel efficient car doesn't make any economic sense on a personal for personal finance reasons and so we look at the customers we know we have data on how far people drive and what kind of cars they're driving and we would expect to see that the people who drive more are in the more energy efficient cars and that turns out not to be true at all yeah
0: it's that, really surprising but but it also depends on the discount rates that they apply on the future stream of um uh, savings right so I'm thinking um the 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 discount rate might also be changing over time so humans with uh, finite horizons uh that discount rate will continue to increase as you look forward
1: that's exactly
0: uh, yeah
1: that's exactly right and um and no analysis of a current cost versus a future expenditure would be complete without a discussion of the discount rates. Um, and we do, Lutz and I do in this paper, exactly what I described with those regulatory impact analysis is we have sensitivity tests. Say, yeah. What if the discount rate were 10% instead of 5% or 2% instead of 5%? And w- no matter what we do, we get the same answer, which is that the how much people are driving is almost uncorrelated with the fuel efficiency of the cars they drive. By contrast, whether they have a college degree um whether they're how old they are um uh their sex whether male or female those -hmm. are those are correlated with buying fuel-efficient cars buying hybrids versus regular cars buying fuel-efficient versions of regular cars versus inefficient versions of regular cars so our, our punchline is the demographics is predicting vehicles fuel economy not the cost savings
0: yeah, yeah, that's that's really interesting. So, so you know, it has broad implications. I think um, one implication is that, as you say, education, um, your knowledge, um, or whatever, you're not really firing up that Excel spreadsheet doing a discounted cash flow analysis when you make that decision. The the decision is more potentially emotion driven rather
1: than economics driven. Would you say that's true? it is but it's i'm going to push back a little bit on it yeah. because um economists realize that nobody fires up the excel spreadsheet <laughs> when they go to the grocery store to buy cornflakes yeah um or to buy you know a- any product that people don't behave like our rat people don't do ca- do the calculus problem to figure out their optimal consumption of, <laughs> of uh you know coca-cola yeah. but at the margin on average It seems to work pretty well for most goods Hmm. and in this case it doesn't it doesn't yeah that's so
0: interesting all right so 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 what do you attribute that to well why why is it not working here
1: it's not that the so i attributed to a couple of things one is that it's not that salient the future savings are um people are bad at making current versus future decisions Um, and this one is particularly not that salient it's uncertain because i don't know how much i'm going to drive in the future and i don't know how much the gas prices are going to go up or down Um, and that and people are bad at assessing uncertainty Um, and the third thing is that those vehicle characteristics are highly correlated. We try to control for all of the other characteristics of a vehicle that are correlated with their fuel economy, like how big and powerful they are and so forth. But some of those things are are unseen by us and they may be correlated with the fuel economy of the vehicle and that's what people are really judging it on. So, you know, one of the curiosities for us is that you know some cars come exactly the exactly the same car comes as both a hybrid or a or a gas powered version yeah and we can look at who's making the financial um, financially costly decision of buying the wrong kind of car either driving a hybrid when they don't drive very, buying the hybrid when they don't drive very many miles or buying the gas car when they drive a lot those are financially costly decisions yeah. and men are more likely to make the mis- decision of buying the fuel efficient car the yeah. hybrid when they even though they don't drive it much right and women are more likely to make the other type of costly decision oh yeah. but when we look at regular cars not when we look at not the hybrid versus gas powered trade off but you know think of two nearly equivalent cars of the same size and power one's more efficient than the other hmm. men are more likely to make the decision the the costly decision of buying the more gas consuming car and women are more likely to make the costly decision of buying the more efficient car when they don't uh when they when they don't drive it much so the roles reverse it must be something innate about i don't know fear of the technology of the new hybrid or i like the rumble of a gas guzzling car it's so it's something else is going on that's driving this decision that that isn't in our spreadsheets.
0: Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, it, it touches on a lot of different things, right? So uh, I'll throw another thing into this, uh, Eric, for discussion. You know, the American optimism is that we are all going to be millionaires. And and so, yeah, you know, almost every American doesn't want taxes to rise for millionaires because they believe they're all going to be millionaires. And it's a good trait because we are optimistic about our future. Uh, But it is sort of irrational optimism in some ways. And I wonder if irrational
1: optimism is figuring
0: into uh, these decisions.
1: Is it irrational optimism? I hadn't thought about that. (laughs) Um, uh, Yeah, I buy a... I just... I would... So here I'm speculating. Yeah. The paper is very, you know, it's an economics paper, so it's very circumscribed, and we're cautious about interpreting our results. And what we show in the paper is fairly narrow, which yeah. is that people don't seem to make decisions about what car to drive based on their um, their future fuel costs. So anything I say beyond that is pure speculation. <laughs> uh, yeah. But you asked, so I'll speculate. Yes. Um, I just think there are in in addition to being um, uh, optimistic Americans have been uh, uh, American culture has been a car culture for a long time. Yes. Yeah. That's changing a little bit among the youth, but America is still a car country and your the dro- the car you drive signifies the kind of person you are. Yes. And so people buy cars for things, color, size, noise, street you know, street appeal that are unrelated to their they're willing to pay a lot for the the image that their car projects. Think of all the people who drive four wheel drive vehicles but never put it into four wheel drive. It's like the it's
0: like the clothing. They're
1: wearing the car. Exactly.
0: Yeah.
1: Am and I so one? that
0: creates a lot of noise into the data in some sense
1: noise, and it's expensive noise, uh, especially if the, the attributes they like in their vehicles are make them not very cost effective or, or not very uh, fuel efficient. Yeah, yeah.
0: You know, I mean, I, I find it really interesting that you can take the demographics, except the gender, out of the analysis, you know, in terms of uh, education and wealth and things like that, but you find, you know, essentially the same same things in spite of those factors in it. Uh, which means that it is it is somewhat generic uh, expectation right you could you could almost predict what what could happen here
1: yeah i I could based on what we've done so far but what we've done so far is historical and fads change yes right so um, what you know I, I just read that Ford is not no, so not, it's dr- yeah, but they're not I, making any sedans, and so that what they used to sell was sedans, and now they're not going to make sedans. So the fad has changed.
0: Yeah, so so from a policy perspective, I was thinking, I'm stretching this a bit, Eric. So you can you can stop me if you like. But so suppose I say I can predict who is going to make a bad choice here, based on factors I can observe maybe i can i can um prevent that i can I can take counteractive uh, actions against that um do you
1: do you do you think that's possible in the future interesting um I don't know. I will tell you an anecdote I think that this paper was motivated in my mind in part by walking around my neighborhood of northwest washington d c yeah. where I have tons of neighbors who are on the liberal end of the spectrum, I see lots of people with electric cars or hybrids, and nobody drives very far. Lots of my neighbors bike to work, and so they leave their electric car parked in the driveway. And so they're making that bad choice. But what they're doing is signaling to their neighbors that they're environmentally friendly. Yes, um, And that's not a bad thing. I don't want to, you know, if, if it's a culture of if a culture of environmental friendliness is out there and that um, that causes people to do things that are good for the environment, I wouldn't want to punish that. Hmm. But the way we've set up our fuel economy standards, so this goes back to the previous paper now,
0: yeah,
1: that choice is really bad for the environment because the way our CAFE standards work, our fuel economy standards work, is they're fleet-wide averages. So Toyota has to sell cars that average a certain mile per gallon Mm -hmm. and if i buy a fuel-efficient toyota and leave it parked in the driveway that means toyota gets to sell a gas guzzling car to somebody else who presumably is going to drive it a lot Mm -hmm. so what i should what i should really do if i cared a lot about the environment is buy the most gas guzzling car i can and leave it parked in my driveway and never use it and that would force Toyota to or whoever it was to sell a fuel efficient car to somebody else who would presumably drive it. Mm. And that would but that would be the wrong signal, right? It would sell tell to my neighbors that they would look and they would say, look, Arik has this gas guzzler and he has this Humvee in his driveway. What a yeah. terrible person he is. Right, right, right. Yeah. So
0: yeah, so, so my speculation you know, is that um cars are like clothing and cars are like houses that you live in then what, the, the neighborhoods that you bought your house, it's sort of a, a simple a signal of who you are as a person. It is, it is not an economic decision. It's sort of an advertisement of who you are. And if you do that, that is, you're probably going to end up with wrong, from an economic perspective, wrong choices.
1: And it's, it's part of the pack that we haven't taxed externality because um people do respond to prices and so um adding a a cost of doing that wrong thing would get some people at the margin to to make better decisions right right
0: so so in conclusion let me put you on the spot so if you were to advise the biden administration today um what would be the features from a from a sort of environmental perspective that you would be most most interested in uh, to you know to to become sort of a law or a policy choice
1: um i would say that um if we're not going to impose a carbon tax that we should have a set of analyses that mimic what a carbon tax would do and what a carbon tax would do is it equates the cost the incremental cost or marginal cost of cleaning up pollution via all the different mechanisms. And so if there's a mechanism that's particularly costly per per ton of carbon abated, we should do less of that. And if there's a mechanism that's particularly inexpensive per ton of carbon abated, we should do more of it. An example is the uh, retrofitting homes for energy efficiency. Hmm. The Biden administration, the the Obama administration in the Recovery Act had a lot of money for retrofitting homes to be more energy efficient. They that has been shown to be a very costly way of reducing carbon emissions because the energy savings aren't nearly what prom, what they were promised to be. Yeah. The Biden administration, I think, is now uh, planning to propose to retrofit four million homes. I would do less of things like that and more of the things that are that are less expensive to do.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it is uh, sort of disappointing. I mean, we, we have feel good policies. Feel good policies always sell. Um, analytically driven, quantitatively supported policies don't. And so, you know, what politicians have figured out is, you know, they gravitate towards sort of the feel good policies and they're always going to be suboptimum.
1: they are there's a sweet spot of policies that feel good and may be uh cost effective um and that's the i guess that's the that's the job of the politicians to find those yeah yeah
0: excellent yeah this has been great Eric thanks so much for spending time with me
1: very nice talking with you thank you